Welcome to Class 24. So we only barely got to Tom Bombadil today, as it turned out, but we did have some good talk about the ring and about Frodo's status as ring-bearer. So, I do want to get to Tom Bombadil today, so, so let's, let's, let's move. Um, the, uh, the, the posting of the makeup class was slightly delayed due to temporary uh, technical difficulties, which were ultimately overcome. Uh, it is up now. Uh, I, I, it was actually a, it was a really uh, fun class. I strongly encourage you to listen to it. One of the things that we talked about at the end of uh, the makeup class was the impact, the, the, the influence that the ring has on on its bearer and looking at some of the, we were looking at some of the ways in which the ring was influencing Frodo, not just in his desire for the ring. Gandalf points that out from the beginning when Frodo is saying, from the beginning that is when Gandalf is explaining to him what he has, uh, when, you know, Frodo's like, oh, I wish you'd just like sent me, you know, a message, I'd have destroyed it. And Gandalf is like, really, right? Go ahead, go ahead. And so Frodo goes to try to throw it in the fire and can't can't force himself to do it, and Gandalf shows, see, look, it's already, already it has a hold on you, that you can't will yourself to damage it. Uh, but there's more to the ring than just that. Um, we looked at the passages particularly, the two times when the Black Riders almost corner them on the road, uh, that is corner Frodo and, and, and Sam and Pippin as they're crossing the Shire, um, and when the Black Riders are right there and creeping towards them, Frodo begins to have these trains of thought going through his head. He feels this strong desire to put on the ring, but it's not just an irrational impulse. A series of rationalizations go through his mind. Gandalf's advice seems absurd. I'm still in the Shire. Bilbo wore the ring and no harm came. Um, and, and so just this, this, this quick fire set of rationalizations, and we see it both times when he's influenced by it. Um, and I just wanted to point that out, uh, sort of pick that up again, because we see two other very important instances of that. Um, and I want to look at this in order to understand what the ring is about. Um, there are ways in which one of the things that I really admired uh, that the screenwriters of the films were trying to do, one of the things that I think was, was, was a very good uh, perception of the books on their part was their desire to make, as they explicitly articulate uh, in their documentaries um, that the ring itself is, 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 is not an object but a character in this story and that they were very self-consciously trying to build the character of the ring. Um, and they're clearly right about this. The, the, the ring is a character. It makes choices. It, it makes decisions. It does things. And it is, again, it's not just emotional and impulsive, but, it's, but it, it has reason in some sense, or at least induces reason. Look at Frodo's thinking in The Prancing Pony. This is page 154. Strider says, you better do something quick as Pippin is about to do something stupid. (laughs) And then he stands up on the table, Frodo does, right, makes his little impromptu speech saying a, a few very suitable words. Uh, and in that paragraph about two-thirds of the way down, which starts, Frodo suddenly felt very foolish and found himself, as was his habit when making a speech, fingering the things in his pocket. He felt the ring on its chain, and quite unaccountably, the desire came over him to slip it on and vanish out of the silly situation. It seemed to him somehow as if the suggestion came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room. 
He resisted the temptation firmly and clasped the ring in his hand as if to keep a hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing any mischief. This is an important moment because this shows a change in Frodo's own thinking and in Frodo's own perceptions. The first two times we see the ring affecting him, he's not aware that it is. He's not conscious of the fact that he is being operated on from outside, from outside his own head. Here he does recognize that. He felt something in the room. Yeah, like maybe something in your pocket is, is, is suggesting this to you. And you can see even in his, the choice that he makes there at the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the, I'm, I'm, of course I'm not going to put on the ring. That would be ridiculous. But, but I'm going to hold on to it firmly. Almost like he's trying to discipline it. Right? As if to keep a hold on it and prevent it from escaping or doing any mischief, what's it going to do in his pocket? Right? But again, he has this sense, the ring is acting up, and I, have to, and, I, and, and I need to try to control it. Now, of course, that's a mistake. Because he's got his hand in his pocket holding onto the ring, when he falls off the table, it slips on his finger. So, in fact, he ends up enabling the mischief that the ring does. Um, and we get that interesting moment where he says, it was sheer accident. And Strider says, I wonder. Not, not an accident. Of course, we've already seen accidents rarely actually happen in Tolkien's story. But this is not like one of Bilbo's accidents from The Hobbit. This is not chance working in his favor. This is the ring doing mischief. Yeah, Marta? Well, even the next sentence, it says, um, at any rate, it gave him no inspiration. Yes. So... It didn't give him any power or any kind of creative flow, you know, anything for a speech. So it kind of, that can allude to the fact that the room never gives you power. It just uses you. Yeah. Even though it seems to be so strong, it, it will not help you. Yes. And points to the fact that the things that, well, it makes you think or that you find yourself thinking when the ring is operating on you are lies, usually. Um, even notice the lie that the ring is telling him here. It's only one. It's, it's, just, it's a short thing. But he wants to vanish out of the silly situation. Right? And you see that? Uh, don't you feel dumb right now? Here you are standing on a table, table and everyone's looking at you. Wouldn't it be nice just to vanish right now so that everyone would stop looking at you? Now, this is, really, this is a really transparent lie. As Frodo is plenty smart enough to see... I think that would probably draw quite a bit more attention than just standing here would draw. As, of course, it does, right? I mean, no one is going to remember tomorrow or the next day one of those funny hobbits from out of town standing on the table and making a speech. But everyone's going to remember for weeks and years, you know, the wandering conjurer who disappeared in the middle of Barlowman's common room. Um, As Butterbur himself calculates, right? He's not upset that everybody leaves because he knows they're all going to be back to talk about it the next day and the day after that, right? It's going to be a wonder. So, so, yeah, so I think Marta makes a really good point. The ring deceives. Um, it's not to say, of course, that it's powerless. It, it does give some kinds of power, but rarely what it promises. Um, and, it, and it is deceptive. The most important moment with Frodo in the ring, though, in today's reading, is what happens in the barrow. Remember the, uh, the, the interaction he has with the ring when he's confronted by the barrow white? This is after he wakes up. 
uh, Frodo has woken up, and he's in the barrow, and Sam and Pippin and Mary are lying there in grave clothes with the naked sword across their throats, and he sees the arm of the barrow white creeping in, reaching for the handle of the sword. On page 138, the barrow white's already made his incantation. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned into stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring whether the barrow white would miss him and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving over Mary and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. Hear that same tone of rationalization? It sounds a lot like Bilbo wore the ring and I'm still in the Shire. Right? Okay, yes, I, I, even the, 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 the little brief fantasy he has, not only of his escape, but of himself grieving, right? It's not that I'm telling you just to turn your back on your friends. I mean, it's very sad. And you will mourn them fittingly. I'm not suggesting you do something callous or thoughtless. But inevitable, even Gandalf would affirm there was nothing else you could do. Now, he, he rejects this and turns away from it, um, which is very important. I, I, I suggested how in the Prancing Pony incident we can see a change in his perspective, and I rather think that this is the moment where that change starts to happen because in the first two, the first two incidents, which happened, by the way, on page 73 and 77, uh, when the black riders are coming and he has the temptation to put on the ring, neither time does he resist it. He's giving in the first time. I mean, he's reaching for it and his hand touches the chain and then by chance, fortunately, that's the moment when the black rider goes away. So, danger averted. The second time, again, he's going for the ring when the elves show up and the black rider runs away again. This now is the third time he's had this kind of temptation, but the first time he actually resists it and instead does something courageous, does something to help his friends instead of just to save himself. And so we see when he experiences the temptation a fourth time in The Prancing Pony, interestingly, he now seems to be more aware of it, more, more cognizant of what's going on. This is some external force that's operating on me here. Um, Gandalf will call the time with Frodo here in the barrow perhaps the most dangerous moment of Frodo's entire trip, which is something to say given what's going to happen later on. But Gandalf says this, this was touch and go, he says. Um, And I think that, of course, yes, obviously they're in terrible danger from the Barrow White, uh, but I wonder if it's not this particular moment that Gandalf is thinking of. Had Frodo given in to this temptation, this powerful temptation, uh, it would not have taken great cowardice or great wickedness to succumb to this. In fact, the next paragraph insists exactly on the opposite, that it takes very remarkable and unusual courage and fortitude to make the choice that Frodo does make and that almost no other hobbit would have done it. But had he, had he not done what he did, things would have been very different. Um, and he would have been submitting to the power of the ring already, not to mention what would have happened with the Barrow White, and not to mention the fact, of course, that it seems unlikely in the big picture 
that the bear, you know, he says, you know, he wondered whether the Barrow White might miss him if he, turned, if he put on the ring. I'm going with no there. Uh, from what we see of the ring and what we learn about the ring later on, the Barrow White is himself a spiritual creature who would almost certainly be able to see Frodo while he's wearing the ring. We will learn uh, in the next, in your reading for Monday, that Frodo becomes not invisible, but uniquely visible to the ring wraiths, uh, to the Black Riders when he's, when he's wearing the ring. Um, and I think there's lots of reason to believe that the same would have been true of the Barrow White. So um, it would have got, things would have gone very, uh, gotten very ugly very quickly that way. Um, I mentioned, though, briefly the, the luck and chance thing. And I want to stop and go back to that. I want to move on to the conspiracy into Tom Bombadil. But, but I want to pause just for a second to make sure we draw attention to this. It's something that I trust after the time we spent talking about it in The Hobbit, something that you've been noticing as we, as we go along, but I just want to draw explicit attention to it uh, to be safe. Um, remember Gandalf's commentary back in chapter 2, In the Shadow of the Past, in his conversation with Frodo about the ring, um, when he's talking about the moment that Bilbo finds the ring. Um, remember he says... It's the most, the the ring is found by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. There was more than one power at work there. When he's trying to explain to to Frodo, um, the ring left Gollum on purpose. He's trying to explain what the ring is like and how it makes choices. The ring left Gollum. And Frodo is skeptical about that. What, just in time to... To meet Bilbo, he says, and Gandalf yells at him. This is no laughing matter, especially not for you. That was the strangest chance in the whole thing. And there was, there was more than one power at work. The ring was trying to get back to Sauron, but it failed by chance, by a fluke, an incredibly freakish chance of all of the tunnels of the entire goblin network beneath the misty mountain for the ring to have popped off Gollum's finger in it happened to be the one in which Bilbo was going to be have his head bumped and be left behind in the dark just in time for him by coincidence to grope along and happen to feel it in the dark as he's crawling I mean it's of all of the chances the unlikely chances that happened moon letters and glam drink and everything else uh, from the hobbit that is clearly the most astronomically unlikely event and gandalf draws our attention to this there was more than one power at work he says i can put it no plainer than to say that bilbo was meant to find it and not by its maker whenever gandalf says that i always want to say in response really gandalf you can't put it any plainer than that Physically impossible to be more plain. Let's try. Let's try to one-up Gandalf in plainness here. What is he saying? He uses this kind of, still a kind of a vague fate language, right? But it's not just fate, like an impersonal destiny. He was meant to find it, and not by its maker. John? Presumably, when we talk about more than one power at work, we have a couple candidates, Right? Uh, that is, obviously, this is, he is suggesting, this is a power that's working against Sauron. So, 
Uh, our candidates for which power might be at work, what I would say, would be three categories of candidates, right? That is, one, the, those who are there on the ground actually working against Sauron, people in the Gandalf, Elrond, Galadriel category, right? Uh, Gandalf's, the way that Gandalf talks about it suggests that is not the power that he is alluding to. Um, clearly, they are all caught on the hop by this, which leaves two other categories, Iluvatar, or the Valar, right? Drawing a distinction between these two, I think, is not always an entirely useful distinction to draw. Um, but here, that reference at the end of the Silmarillion to things that come which are a surprise, even to the Valar, I think suggests that this is not even just, you know, like Ulmo doing his thing behind the scenes as we see him sometimes do in the Silmarillion. Jordan? Well, more than that, when the Valar tend to interfere with the children of Iluvatar, um, that, that blatantly, don't they tend to classily screw things up? Well, no, screw things up. I, you know. They'll, they'll disrupt affairs, perhaps, we could I mean, say more I neutrally? imagine that no fault of their own, they would have been a little too heavy-handed, and Bilbo, <laughs> Bilbo would have been like, well, it's better to kill Gollum Maybe. Well, I, I wouldn't want to paint the Valar as like blundering incompetence because I, that, that I think is unfair. But uh, but certainly children as well as they think they do. Yeah. Sometimes I think we can see that, and we can certainly see when they do intervene, they tend to do so in pretty big ways. Um, my. Uh, my money would be on Iluvatar in, in, in this particular one here. Um, now, watch where Gandalf goes from here. Um, look at page 60. This is when they're talking about it. Frodo asks, why was I chosen? And this is a good question. I mean, Gandalf is suggesting that he has been in some way you know, chosen, he's been sort of anointed for this. As, you know, you were meant to have it. Um, look at Gandalf's response. Such questions cannot be answered, said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. So, okay, so Frodo says, I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? And Gandalf says, well, don't worry. It's not because, you know, you have any particular talents, skills, or it's in any way appropriate for you to have it. That's comforting. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that, Gandalf. I feel better now. (laughs) What is Gandalf emphasizing? Why does he go here? And it's almost, it's like he's clarifying, you may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess. I mean, it's, it's not because you're special or something. Well, was he, was he trying to, to save him? It seems like in the past instances of the ring showing up to people, it's been a matter of pride that's been their downfall. Like a silver was like, no, it came to me. I cut it off his hand. Yes. 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 I deserve this uh, as... For, yeah, for not only because I achieved it myself, but as wear guild for my father and brother. Um, yeah, the desire to lay unique and personal claim to the ring um, is 
a major trend. Everybody who has the ring falls prey to that, even Bilbo, though less than others. Um, so, yeah, I think we can see some forearming of Frodo against this. Now, don't forget, you're not special, right? It's The ring isn't yours because you're so special, and it's therefore your appropriate prize. Don't go there. Don't be thinking about that. Yeah, Shanta? Because the other side of that coin is, but he is at least a little bit special because, you know, we said not too long ago... Any other hobbit would have given in, but he didn't. Yes, yes. Uh, the narrator tells us in that moment in the Barrow that uh, we're, we're let in on some privy information that both Gandalf and Bilbo had long thought Frodo the best hobbit in the Shire, that they, they do think he's special among hobbits, actually. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, this is clearly not... It doesn't reflect any actual low opinion uh, on Gandalf's part of, of, of Frodo. Though, of course, keep in mind also... In the bigger picture, sure, Frodo may be an extraordinary hobbit, but he's still a hobbit for crying out loud, right? I mean, there's something interesting. There's something special in the ring having been found by one of these silly little small furry-footed weak people who live in this happy but powerless and sheltered little country. Remember, when Bilbo offers the ring to Gandalf, this seems on the one hand like the obvious intuitive thing to do, hey, you have the qualifications to handle this. After all, you're like, you know, a powerful good guy, right? You're one of the enemies of Sauron. Why don't you take the ring as you're the obvious person to have this since you can do something about it? And then you take, because obviously you're way more qualified than I am. So you have, I mean, it's perfectly logical. Frodo's move there. What does Gandalf say in response? He refuses it. Why? Marta? Well, this something to the effect that he is He's too powerful and that he would want it too much to use it to protect and to do the things that he wants to do. They know that he knows that he can't. Yes. Because he's too special. Yes. He's too, because he says, over him, the ring would have a power even more great and terrible. He is special. And, you know, he kind of does. You know, at least it would be easy for him to convince himself that he does deserve it. And he could wield it. He could take it and use it against Sauron and, and destroy Sauron. And he would know that he could do that. Bilbo, first, and Frodo, second, is this, are the safest possible. Whatever power was at work there knew what it was doing. Because only with them would it be safe. Had anybody else found it? An elf? You know, a, 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 a Gondorian? Anybody? One of the... Goodness, imagine, you know one of uh, Thorin and company finding it. No matter how good-hearted they were, I mean, it's easy to see how things would have gone bad, right? But it turns out that the ring has been sheltered because it was a hobbit that happened to find it. And this leads us to another good thing about why the Shire is sheltered, right? Um, It turns out it was an awfully good thing that the ring has been sheltered here. Um, I think that uh, going off of what, Ma- what was Marta was saying about how the fact that Gandalf is too good to possess the ring, um, Alubatar has the ability to use, you know, um, all of uh, the evil that uh, Melkor introduced to the world for the good effect. So it seems that Frodo has just the right amount of virtue and uh, and vice in order to accomplish what he needs to do. He is just strong enough, but he is also weak enough. Because if you're too strong, 
You're not going to be able to do this. Um, it's just not going to work. It can't happen. Um, but notice also, one could potentially draw a false conclusion here, which is that Gandalf is being merely fatalistic, right? Ah, some other destiny is involved here, so just roll with it, Frodo. It's not about you. You are merely the instrument of fate. But that's not what he says. In fact, in that same paragraph, you'll remember what he emphasizes is on Frodo's own responsibility. But you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. It is your responsibility to do everything you can. You can't do much. In fact, that's one of the things that qualifies you. But, but you have to do everything that you can. It's your responsibility. So, so it is, he, he immediately goes to a very strongly anti-fatalistic place with this. Um, but we still see throughout the book, not just that one climactic moment of the finding of the ring, but in lots of places the guiding hand of luck uh, at work, not only in the two incidents with the Black Riders, as I already mentioned. I mean, the, the, and Gildor is aware of this. Gildor, Gandalf, everyone who, who knows anything is perfectly aware that these things are happening by coincidence and that it's not really coincidence. Um, Gildor says, I see in this meeting there is more than chance. Right? Because it was, they didn't know they were there. They, had no idea. they didn't even realize the black rider was there until the hobbits tell, tell them, yeah, there was totally a black rider right here that ran off as you approached. And they're like, huh. Well, that was a fortunate coincidence. Except they know it's not. What other, when else have they been saved by highly fortuitous coincidence? Well, Tom Bombadil, of course. Yeah, he just happens to be walking down to the river. They ask him, like, did you hear us calling or was it chance? And he says, well, I didn't hear you. I was busy singing. I was drowning out your cries for help just with singing about the color of my boots, right? So he, he, he didn't hear them. He says, chance it was, if chance you call it. And again, all of the elves, they all talk that way about chance. Um, very few of the wise will mention luck or chance without adding something like, as it's called, afterwards. Um, they're aware of what's going on. But again, not only is that by chance, like they happen to come at the time of day when Tom was skipping and dancing down to the river, but he mentions it's actually kind of a slim chance. That was the very last day of the year in which he's going to go down to the river. Um, after that, he's done, because this is, he's gathering the last of the season's water lilies for Goldberry. And you know, other than he's not going to go down by Old Man Willow again for months. So, again, very fortunately, they happen to come on his last day. Yeah. We haven't gotten the story yet. Stop me. But when they leave Tom Bombadil... We have. Go ahead. Um, they run into that foggy, misty thing. They always separate it. And if they had never met him in the first place, they wouldn't have been able to use the little chance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we see them fail in their attempts just across the Old Forest in the first place. But yes, clearly, even if they had to cross the Old Forest successfully, um, 
had they not... It's, it's like a little sort of mini version of what kept happening with Bilbo and the dwarves, right? Had they not been captured by the goblins, they would have ended up going the wrong way. And then had they not been captured by the elves, they would have ended up going the wrong way. And, and so it, their misfortune ends up being good fortune all the time. And we can see that even here. Had they not uh, run afoul of Old Man Willow in the first place, they would certainly have been destroyed by the Barrowites. So, so yes, I mean, I think we, we can certainly see that same pattern there. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll go ahead. I think it's really interesting that this point is such a big deal in the Lord of the Rings that there's no such thing as chance or luck or anything like that because there's such an emphasis on luck in the Hobbit. Yeah, with like yeah. Number 14 and everything. And yeah, yeah. Gandalf, who I guess, would, I mean, I assume you would be counted as one of the wise. Yes. Talks about how they should go with 14 because it's a luckier number. And yeah. It's true. I mean, we didn't even talk about that at the time, but it seems, when you first read it, it seems like a silly, superstitious thing. Like, oh, lucky numbers. Yes, we must be worried about that. You know, we couldn't go out, set out with 13. But Gandalf, at no point is Gandalf like, yeah, you know, come on, guys, get over it. Right. Um, he, he's totally on board with the lucky number thing. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Tony? Slightly off topic, but just going back to why Frodo got the ring, I'm wondering, what... what? Would people do with the ring? Like, everybody said, you know, it's got this amazing power. Gandalf can't take it because he would become too powerful. All we've seen it do so far is make some people invisible, but right. Tom Bill puts it on and nothing happens. Right. What power do they gain? Good. What we'll learn about the ring later on is what powerful people can do with it is dominate other people. Um, what the ring was designed for, and you remember from the last section of the Silmarillion, the point of the ring originally was to rule the other rings. Right? I mean, he, 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 Sauron helps Celebrimbor and company make their rings of power, um, but he wants a ring that will be the ruling ring that will enable him to, to, to have control over all of them. He's going to make them all his slaves. Um, so it is that, in a single word, domination is the, is, is the power that that the ring gives you, the power of command. Um, there will be times later on, as they get closer and closer to Mordor and as the ring kind of grows and grows in stature and its own power and ability, we will see these, these rationalizations and these little streams of internal dialogue, um, which will actually often be put in external monologue form. We'll have uh, people... W- w- we will see several people give what I call a ring-induced monologue later on in the book when, when, their own, when they're giving voice to the rationalization that, that the ring is... And we'll see many of them get it right. That is, what the ring is promising them is some of the stuff that it actually kind of would, in theory, have the power to give. Command. Uh, dominion. That's what it's about. So if Gandalf took it, what could he do with it? He could, he could, take, he could just destroy Sauron with it. He... He could rule him. He could become the boss. But all it can make you do is become the boss. And that's always a questionable thing to do, even if done for a good intention. Because um, then where are you? Now, hooray, Sauron, the horrible dictator, is overthrown by the new horrible dictator. Right? I mean, the, pro- the, the fundamental problem that Elrond and, 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 and uh, Gandalf are always facing is that, you know what would happen is just meet the new boss same as the old boss. I mean, that's, that's the rule uh, with the ring. So, Where does the invisibility come from? Is that just like a side effect? Then? Yes. Yes, in a sense. In a sense, it's a side effect, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. 
Right. Oh. Those who have the ring may experience invisibility. When, uh, yes. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> if your invisibility lasts for more than four hours, consult a physician. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. The... It's not designed to be an invisibility ring. Um, I'm going to give you an IOU on this one, because um, after Weathertop and the flight to the Ford, the explanation I'd have to give on this would make a lot more sense. Um, if I don't come back and talk explicitly about this next time, Tony, tell me. Remind me. Okay, good, good. Um, but I do want to wait for that, because we'll, we'll, we'll see much more about how it operates and its invisibility. What we will learn is that it's, in, the invisibi- it's not just making somebody transparent. It's doing something else. Uh, the fact that they can't see you is because something else is happening to you. And Bilbo never knew about that, never thought about that. It was never an issue. When the ring rates are in the room, it becomes more of an issue, and we learn more about that. Um, Aaron? Um, in the movie, they seem to stress that if you have the ring on, Sauron can track you. That doesn't seem to be the case in the book because Bilbo has it on for weeks and weeks. Yeah. <laughs> this is, honestly, uh, if there is one thing that I am sitting back sort of uh, with a mischievous smile waiting to see how they deal with it in the Hobbit films that they're coming out with, <laughs> it's this. Uh, how on earth... They're going to have Bilbo, because Bilbo keeps the ring on the whole time he's in the Elven King's Hall when the, when the dwarves are in prison. I mean, he wears it for weeks. And, you know, like, is it going to be the whole time, you know, in that, like, altered reality, like, I am watching you. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's just like constantly 24-7 for Bilbo. I mean, like, I don't, like, I feel like they've really painted themselves in a corner there. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure they're, they're very clever. I'm sure they'll get out of it. But I think it's going to be, I, I, it's, it's, for me, that's like the number one thing I'm going to be w- looking forward to when I finally see the films. Uh, what we will see in the films is, or in the books, is that, uh, first of all, I should have asked this like eight weeks ago. Um, if you've not seen the films, raise your hand. Okay, a couple of people. There's, there's no shame in that. That's okay. You know, you know. Okay, I just want to, because I've been making a lot of references to the films, and I want to make sure that that's not useless to a large number of you. For those of you who haven't seen, you'll, you'll, you'll get a chance. We'll, we'll, we'll watch it next month. But um, uh, in the films, when Frodo puts it on in The Prancing Pony, under vastly different circumstances, uh, he sees the eye of Sauron and hears Sauron's voice. This is not happening. Um, Sauron does not have the ability, in fact, to see over hundreds and hundreds of miles to see where he is. When he gets closer to Mordor, that will be possible. Um, But not yet. I'm starting to feel the we're never going to get to talk about Tom Bombadil panic, but I'm, I'm like... Happy to answer questions theoretically, but at the same time, like, I'm, I'm, I'm panicking a little bit here. Okay, okay, okay. Nothing I would love more than, a, than an open, extended Q&A session, but Tom Bombadil is kind of a big deal, so we should, we should get to Tom Bombadil. Uh, and before that, I want to spend 20 seconds saying, just noting something about the conspiracy. Um, this is a wonderful moment um, of where... 
Tolkien kind of takes, sort of plays with his themes. That is, it sounds at first, like, and again, especially when you come from, from the Silmarillion. Remember the greatest evil that the, the anti-Morgoth League in Middle-earth had to fear always was treachery. Right, that, that what kept bringing them down, like the, you know, they, they would have won the near Nithernoidiad had not they been betrayed, right? And this is why, again and again, the main thing that they fear post kinslaying is you've always got to be looking over your shoulder at your supporters and followers and even even your relatives. And so now here's Frodo about to leave the Shire, do his great self-sacrificial act. I'm leaving the Shire behind so that it may be saved. And then right as he's about to leave. The friends that he trusts most are all like, we've been in this conspiracy against you and we've been spying on you for months. And if, if coming from the Silmarillion, it's, it's, it's a kind of an ominous sounding moment. This could go bad. It sounds like exactly the kind of dissension that Morgoth was always sowing. No, it's not, right? And it turns out, it flips back around again, that in fact, the, self, the act of self-sacrifice that Frodo was attempting to do not just for the Shire, but for them. I'm going to leave you behind so that I can save your lives, gets trumped by their act of self-sacrifice for him, right? Um, and the question of betrayal and trust, I think, uh, is, is uh, articulated really well by, I think it's Mary, who says, um, you know, when, when, when Frodo says, it doesn't look like I can trust anyone when he finds that Sam has been spying on him uh, on purpose, um, not just by accident. So it turns out when he was caught under the window that day, this was not a coincidence or a spontaneous thing. This was Sam. He has been deliberately snooping under the windows of Bag End for quite some time now, actually. Um, but anyway, so when Frodo says, it doesn't look like I can trust anyone, Mary says, it depends on what you want. You can't trust us to let you go and face danger alone. You can trust us to stick with you. Um, so it's, it's what looks like it's going to be a, a, a breaking of fellowship becomes an establishment of fellowship. And remember the advice that he gets from Gildor, the elf, the advice that he has to twist Gildor's arm to give him. When Gildor finally submits to giving advice, what's the advice that he gives? It's just uh, take those who are willing and true. Yeah. Yeah. Don't go alone. Don't go alone. Gandalf told him that too, right? Uh, he says, you don't, you, don't, you don't have to go alone. Uh, take someone that you can trust. And Gildor says, take those that are willing. Um, Frodo's response to this advice that he's gotten is immediately, well, the next day, when he, the next morning when he's sitting and thinking about it, to reject it. No, I couldn't do that. I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm, I'm gonna not do what Gilder said. I'm not gonna do what Gandalf said. They clearly know what they're talking about. Um, and we've seen, if we remember back, certainly to sort of the the paradigmatic example of this being Baron and Luthien. Mutual bond, uh, love, self-sacrifice, uh, and that that kind of you know connection with each other, fellowship. Uh, to, 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 to use the locally relevant word, um, is clearly a good thing. And that is the great weapon that they have to use against evil. Remember the terms of the, the, sh- 
showdown between Sauron and Finrod, their little singing poetry competition uh, that they have when, when Finrod loses. Finrod eventually loses because of the kinslaying, um, because there is that breaking of fellowship among the elves that Sauron can bring out and trump the oath uh, that he is keeping, um, his connection with Baron. But so here we can see why they're saying, you know, the way to start off your base should be connection, should be fellowship. Um, and that bond will actually strengthen you and give you this weapon to fight the enemy with. Not a material weapon, not a visible weapon, but it will make them stronger and not just in practical terms. Um, and this is one of the things, I talked about this a little while uh, in, in, in yesterday's class and, I, and I'll emphasize it again because it's easy to forget. There are lots of things happening that aren't visible. So much of magic of, or even what would just be called power in Tolkien's world is not at all visibly apparent. We don't, we don't see anything operating on the ring wraiths. Uh, we're told, we will learn, they're having a hard time. They are struggling in the Shire. They are, it's like they are under this like oppression of good. Their powers are limited. Remember, Strider says to them, they won't even attack the inn? The prancing pony is like a little fortress against the Nazca. And this makes no sense. On purely pragmatic terms, right? Why on earth can the ringwraiths, for crying out loud, who have crushed armies, not break into a bar? (laughs) This makes sense to whom? But within this world, it does make sense. The Prancing Pony, of all places in Bree, is the safest place for them to be. That is the place of community. Right? The, the, I mean, the lights and the music, that's where everyone gets together to sing songs together. It's got to be a good place. Right? I mean, it's, there's something about that that seems actually to inhibit. The Black Riders, that's not their way. They're going to wait until they're off by themselves in, in the wild. So they'll attack them at night out in the wilderness. That's where the Black Riders are strong. They're not strong here. So uh, in saying that the bond between them uh, is important is to say more than just, you know, people working together are stronger than people not working together. Well, that ended up being more than 20 seconds, but we have a solid five minutes to talk about Tom Bombadil, and uh, that's, uh, I'm sure, plenty. So who's Tom Bombadil? Those are the two correct answers to that question. Did, did you hear them both? He is the master. And he is. When Frodo asks Tom, who are you? What does Tom Bombadil say? He says, what? Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you yourself? Alone, alone yourself and nameless. How would you answer that question? Who are you, really? I'm me. I'm Tom Bombadil. And by the way, in case you haven't heard, uh, my jacket is blue and my boots are yellow. <laughs> in case for some reason you missed that by this point. Even the fact that he spends all of his time singing about the color of his own clothing, like, 
there are only a couple of explanations for this, right? One of which is insanity, but another of which (laughs) seems to be the kind of delight that he takes in what is going on around him. And all of the, and, and he is. And he's comfortable with that. Um, this is what he, this is, this is what he does. Um, he's ridiculous. The word ridiculous is used a couple times of him. Um, not, not just the singing, but his motions. He's always skipping and dancing around. And even, I mean, if you, if you, if you, like, pay attention. There's some things that just kind of go by you. Like, they'll ask him a question, and his response will be to jump up in the air before he talks. I mean, if you imagine, actually, that, that there are few choices that the screenwriters made which are more natural and understandable than their choice to remove Tom Bombadil entirely from the book, how on earth could you put this guy on, on film and not, I mean... Imagine staging, especially those of you with drama or acting experience, imagine how you would pull this off. Someone asks you a question, and before you answer, you must leap high into the air and then respond. (laughs) I mean, it's just, the way he acts is silly. It's ridiculous. So what are we to do with it? Fortunately, Tolkien wasn't doing film, wasn't doing a visual component. Um, but how does this function in the story? Yeah, Jordan? Well, one thing that seems pretty clear to me is that his nature, even if he doesn't really care about that kind of thing, is that he's an Ainu. Um, he has this powerful singing. Uh, and this has not come yet, but he's referred to as the first. The, yeah, the eldest. Yeah, he's he's been there for a long time. Even in what he he describes, when, when he starts giving history, he says, he says how long he's been there. Uh didn't he say he's been there before trees or something? Which is in the Silmarillion, you know when trees came there. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's he says he remembers the time when the when the seas flowed straight to the western shore before the seas were bent. So pre-fall of Numenor, he remembers when the elves passed through on their way to Valinor. Right, way back then, he remembers the dark before it was fearless. Before the Dark Lord came from the outside, meaning Morgoth. So when Morgoth descends into the world, there's Tom Bombadil already sitting in his little hut here. He's got his cabin in the woods on this. So he has been on this plot of ground since like the formation of Arda, he says. It's pretty clear he's an Einar. I mean, what the heck else could he be? There's, there's just, there isn't any, there's this. Well, he is Tom Bombadil. I mean, there's no question about that, Martin. Well, I'm just the way he's described, the way that he just is so connected to nature. He's he's as natural as the world itself. Like, yes. He, it's not. There's the world, and Tom Bombadil. There's only the world, and Tom Bombadil is a part. Of it. Yes, and and uh, and Goldberry too. Remember the reaction that Frodo has to her. It's like knocking on a a woodman's cot and meeting an elf queen, but. But it's closer than that. It's, he, the, he differentiates the experience between what it would be like to meet an elf queen and what it's like to meet Goldberry. They're more natural even than elves in some way. Their connection. She said she's the daughter of the river. Whatever that means exactly, right? I mean, she's she is part of nature. She is part of the environment. Um,
we see in his relationship to the ring, right? He doesn't become invisible. There was no sign of Tom Bombadil disappearing. Um, which leads Frodo to wonder if, like, uh, he, he's worried that Tom Bombadil's broken it or something. Like, it's, the ring doesn't, doesn't work anymore. He's got to test it out. Though, again, you'll notice we can already see changes in Frodo's relationship with it. Um, remember what he thinks to himself when he turns it on and finds that he has become invisible? He says, yes, it was his ring all right. And so we can already see the kind of ownership that he's thinking. Like, this is, first of all, that was my ring, and it's a very important ring. And here you are flipping it in the air and being like, oh, look, I'm going to pull like the one ring out from behind your ear. I mean, <laughs> he's upset and offended by the way that Tom treats it. But at the same time, he's like, I, I, I want to make sure that this is my ring. Oh, yeah, Whew, it's my ring, all right. I mean, the, the, the my there, I think, is, 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 is kind of resonant. Um, I'll say a couple more things about Tom Bombadil at the beginning of next time. I'm sorry. But uh, the, the one thing I want you to do, here's a little small extra project. Go back, find some passages of Tom Bombadil's speeches, and carefully read them aloud. Okay? Not his songs, just his, his, his speeches. Read them aloud uh, to yourself or in company, however you want to do that. Because uh, I, I want to talk about his language at the beginning of class next time. And then we'll move on, look at the Barrow Whites briefly, and then it's off to Weathertop and the Ford. Oh, and Strider, we'll talk about probably. (laughs) Have a good weekend. And so ends a fun and crazy week in the Tolkien class. The reading for next class is the rest of Book 1 and the first chapter of Book 2, called Many Meetings. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.